Welcome to the Bioengineering Podcast. This podcast is currently intended to promote and increase transparency between current, future, and prospective bioengineering students and faculty. This podcast is not directly affiliated with the UC San Diego Department of Bioengineering. The following is a conversation with UC San Diego bioengineering teaching professor, Dr. Alyssa Taylor. Um, today we have uh, Dr. Alyssa Taylor here. Um, as a leader in bioengineering curriculum development, uh, Dr. Taylor seeks to prepare students to engage in universal design. Um, she aims to foster the development of inclusive, thoughtful engineering graduates who will eventually take those learnings and transfer those skills to uh, society and you know their relative careers. Uh, she joined uh, the UC San Diego School of Engineering in 2022. Uh, she was previously at the University of Washington in the Department of Bioengineering. Um, obviously, as most guests, um, as the audience understands by now, they have been recipients of numerous awards. Um, and, and before that, she received her PhD uh, at the University of Virginia uh, in biomedical engineering and then was at UC Davis before that. So, uh, Dr. Taylor, thank you for being here today. Um, and uh, could you explain to us, obviously, you've come to UCSD in the last 12 months. So, <laughs> like, explain how that all transpired. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, let's see. So yeah, I've been teaching at the University of Washington for about 12 years. I, I joined the faculty there right out of graduate school. Um, so I'm actually from just north of San Diego. Um, I'm from Fallbrook. It's like a smaller town. Yeah. Um, and so I still have family down here. Um, and so um, kind of like a mixture of personal, but then also career development opportunities. Um, you know, UCSD here is fantastic and the bioengineering department so renowned um and there was just like a synergy of my interest and the needs here of the department you know some teaching some teaching uh roles were available and um just a good a good match so chose to move down here and i'm happy to be here yeah so did you always have this vision um over your academic career that you wanted to come back no not at all no No, I've, i've um I, I love teaching at University of Washington, um, so yeah, it's, it, I didn't know. I think a lot of the chapters in my life have been <laughs> kind of surprising, um, but I try and be like open-minded so that when I come across opportunities, then if it works out, then it's great. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it, I didn't know, but I'm happy to be back here. Um, my mom is here and my sister is here, and so it's, it's really good to have the family support. Um, and I think going through the pandemic, honestly, you know, helped you realize what was important. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I don't know, I just feel very fortunate there was a good synergy there. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experience at University of Washington and being in the Department of Biomedical Engineering? And it seems as if you had a similar role. I did, there. yeah. And so explain what that was like. Yeah, bit. well, it was really neat because in my, you know, t- 12 years of teaching, what I've seen now is a real growth in teaching positions like mine. But when I first started, um, there were very few of us teaching-focused faculty. So I was the second um, one in the department, but also the second one in the whole College of Engineering, basically. Um, And so they were still feeling out what that role would look like, but um, it really enabled me to um, kind of make it my own and and kind of find the the roles and contributions I wanted to have for the department there. 
Um, but I started off as like the most, you know, junior faculty member there and just um, took on a lot of um, fun committee projects in addition to my teaching that really enabled me to grow, I think, professionally and um, feel like I was making really good contributions, particularly to the undergrad program there. I was very undergraduate focused in University of Washington, but, mm. and I worked really closely with the student advising office. Mm. So pretty much partnership there, um, myself and the academic advisor really advising the students and um, dealing with student issues and uh, continuous improvement and things like that, in addition to the classes I was teaching, sure. um, which I can talk about too. With. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, we, we will get <laughs> And so even going further back, yeah, was there, did you have it, like, did it come into mind, like, when, I guess I should say, during mm -hmm. your PhD study that you perhaps, did you think about you just want to be a teaching faculty or did you think about oh, I wanted to have my own lab and be a PI or, or did that just kind of come naturally? No, absolutely. It was such a progression. So I actually uh, went to graduate school thinking I was going to get a master's degree and I was going to go into industry. So mm. teaching was like the farthest thing from my mind. Actually, it was not a, um, yeah, if you had asked me like, you know, when I graduated undergraduate, if I was going to be any kind of teaching role, I would said no way. Mm -hmm. So that's my other advice, piece of advice is to be open-minded because you never know what you're going to end up liking yeah. for the long term. Totally. Um, but then in graduate school, I started realizing that I was really enjoying, honestly, tutoring my fellow um, graduate students in continuing mechanics of all courses. We were all in this course together and I just realized, oh, wait, I like explaining these things. Like it was just like this really slow progression that I realized that. And then what I did to kind of solidify that um, interest is I uh, applied for a two-year teaching prep program at the University of Virginia. And it was called Tomorrow's Professor Today, and it was basically a two-year um, program where you go through all kinds of um, requirements and experiences to set yourself up for success teaching at the college level. That was during your and PhD? That was during my PhD, yeah. Um, and my, my PhD advisor gave me her blessing to do that. Um, it wasn't like a whole lot of time because it was spread out over two years. Right. But it really enabled me to, um, you know, design a lab module, uh, shadow lot, lots of renowned teaching professors um, to learn from them, interview people, I don't know, design my own syllabus, um, things like that. So by the end, I basically had a teaching portfolio. So I think that really helped me hone in on the fact that when I graduated, I wanted a teaching position. So yeah, it was a, it was a long journey and um, it, it was, it was, yeah, it was something that I had to explore. So it was kind yeah. of the equivalent of doing an internship almost. Like you don't know sure. until you try it. Totally. So that, yeah. that was kind of where I was at, was just figuring out if that's something I want to do. And I did. I loved it. So, yeah. And so <laughs> and just for the audience's sake, what, what was your PhD study in? Uh, um, so I was focused on microvascular remodeling. Okay. Yeah, I was um, in the lab of uh, Shane Pierce-Cotler. And she was actually a new faculty member when I joined. So that was really fun. I got the experience of having helping to set up a lab and things like that. But... Um, is focused on microvascular remodeling, in particular in uh, the retinal vasculature, um, and looking at two particular molecules and the role mm. that they play in uh, vasculopathy. So the the efferent F class of molecules. So um, sure. a lot of in vivo work um, and things like that. And uh, but since I graduated, um, I haven't really yeah. touched scientific yeah. research. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's been. Is there ever a part <laughs> of you? Uh, that thinks, oh, maybe one day I can creep back into the research. No, side of I'm not interested in. Nope. I, I I love the experience I had as a PhD student because it helps me advise students. Yeah. Like you know, I bring that into my teaching and mentoring. 
But um, I'm very happy now working in scholarly publications in the realm of curriculum development and educational optimization. Um, and so I don't feel like, yeah, I don't feel like I missed anything for me. Like for yeah. me, I feel, like, I feel like I found my niche in bioengineering sure. coming at it this way. Sure. And I love cooperating with the research faculty and like learning from them and being amazed by the work they're doing. Um, sure. And then I feel like I bring the teaching part to the table and... So it's, um, it's really great because I get to go to conferences and stuff. They're just mm. educational conferences. Yeah. 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 Well, well uh, that, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, this is a perfect transition to sort of talking about, you know, your expertise in, in, in academics. So it's such an interesting topic, uh, in my opinion, because it feels like there's so many ways to teach. Mm-hmm. And with that being, and, and, on, and on top of that, there's so many ways to teach effectively. Um, I hail from an institution where uh, the undergraduate focus was hands-on, as much hands-on learning as possible. Uh, There are institutions where the hands-on isn't as intense, but the the theoretical and and pen to paper is much more intense. So these are things I think about when it comes to developing, I guess, courses and curriculum for undergraduates and graduates. And so... Uh, I think we can just open up this open up Pandora's box a little <laughs> bit here and talk mm. about sort of your views on academic on academia and how you can develop um, engineering curriculum for for the, mm. for the betterment of all. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's a really fun and exciting area to be in because we're never done. That's why I love teaching. It's like you, you're always learning um, as a teacher. You're always learning. So I mean, I I've, I've found out over the years it's. It's going to the literature and seeing what other people are doing and looking at best practices that help students learn and engage. But then also you got to figure out what you what works for you as a teacher, like your teaching style. I agree with you. I'm like a big fan of hands-on learning. We know from studies that that really engages students. It's very like across the board, right? Like figuring out how you can teach to all and be inclusive in your teaching. I think hands-on learning is great for that. Um, but there's all kinds of different. Um, yeah, approaches, and you also have to sometimes operate within certain constraints, but then you can yeah. always figure out how to just how to optimize the experience for students. And what I've realized over the years is really the smallest tweaks in your class can turn like a ambivalent kind of experience for students into a really positive experience for students, just like making them feel recognized, mm-hmm. reaching out proactively to them mm-hmm. um, instead of waiting for them to approach you, like when they have, you know, and if you notice any, any issues and things like that, yeah. those are the things I've noticed make such a big difference. Or even just asking a student when you're in person with them, like, how are things going? Checking in with them personally. I think, you know, I come from the University of Washington, which is huge. UCSD is also huge. And if anything you can do to make it feel smaller for them, you know, like a smaller campus, smaller community, right? that's where I get a lot of fulfillment. So you, so I think what we're getting at here is maybe interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. are key yeah. Um, to maybe creating an environment that's uh, 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 optimal for everybody involved. Uh, so obviously that isn't always the case because sometimes, like uh, for example here at UCSD, uh, just an example here is a general chemistry class may have 300 students. Mm-hmm. So what changes there and 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 does the methodology of approaching a course like that change versus approaching a course yeah that's a good question so um i'd say if in those large so i've I've taught pretty large classes too before um i think you can still 
create that atmosphere by what you're messaging to the students. So it's a lot of what you explicitly message. So telling them just really explicitly that I value being here. I am, you are my priority. Like that could be a 300 students to saying that, you know, to five, but just messaging that and then like backing that up with, you know, making yourself available for office hours. Even if they don't come, at least you're showing you're available and it's on your calendar. It's something you value. And then doing what you can to kind of divide them into either like smaller sections mm. to meet. That's always been really, really useful. Anything you can do to kind of unpack it and make it feel a little um, smaller. The other thing that really works and students are really surprised by is in those large classes, I will memorize like their student names. Even 300 might be a lot, but I've definitely memorized like 150 students before, even in large classes. And I'll like call on them <laughs> in class and they like can't believe I know their name or like that they're seen in this sea of students and I've had students literally come up to me after class and be like I can't believe you're actually talking to us yeah. <laughs> during the lecture yeah. um, and they don't feel like a number anymore and so that's those have been some like the most impactful stories I remember from students is just like them expressing that gratitude and it's then that makes it worth the effort that you have to put in as an instructor to really get to know your students. I uh, can definitely resonate with learning names mm -hmm. um, from a student's perspective you know going through going through my academic career and as a TA perspective. Mm -hmm. So I can share a detail from one of my evaluations um, from last spring was, uh, I really, uh, this, this student anonymous said, I really liked how Omid knew everybody's name oh, in yeah. the discussion sections. Yeah. And I just thought about, I just, the, the reason why I strive to do that, it was about a hundred kids total. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> I just thought back to the early days of school mm -hmm. um, and elementary school, middle school, high school. Everybody knew each other by their, by a name. And it seemed to almost break the ice mm -hmm. a little bit yeah. uh, between not only students but the, but, but the teacher. And so uh, I can totally see why that can be uh, a, a resonating thing for not just me and for students and for, for whoever is hearing this. Um, yeah. And so let me ask you about something that just came up. Uh, in, in my mind just now. So uh, the flipped classroom style um, is something that we've, most people who are listening have probably experienced mm -hmm. and everyone seems to have a different view on it. <laughs> um, I could say from, throughout, from, from my experiences, the flipped setting has benefited me, but I can't, I speak for myself. So from a teacher's perspective, what, do you have any insights on the flipped classroom? And, I, yeah, I mean, I, I like the, the goals of the flipped classroom to me, um, makes sense in that you're trying to be, use your class time the most efficient way possible, right? So I, I, I appreciate that and I like that. And so I think you have to figure out whatever style works for you. We know that um, it helps a lot of students learn because they feel like they can get more practice. You don't mention the hands-on part, but it's also, they can actually solve problems, for example, in class and then, you know, do the more, um, I don't know, I want to say passive consumption of information, but the one-way dissemination of information they can mm -hmm. do on their own, right? Watching mm -hmm. the videos. Um, I kind of adopt almost like a, like a hybrid of that, you know, like when it makes sense, allowing resources to be published online for, you know, viewing by themselves is fine. Um, whatever I do, I always like to make sure they're actively involved in class. So they're always having a chance to talk amongst themselves. I'm a big fan of having like small group discussions mm. throughout any class meeting. Yes. Whatever you can do to get them used to the fact that they're going to have to be engaged in like offering their ideas and not just sitting there listening, I think is really the heart of what I think yeah. is like, 
I, I know the students appreciate for the flip classroom they get more chance to do that um, their own problem solving and get help with actually solving you know their assignments and things like that actually in class instead of having just to do that offline for their homework or something um, but yeah I mean that's a great example of a lot of work being done by our excellent colleagues and we can all learn from each other and figure out what works best for your own class. Yeah. Right? So I think it works well for a lot of classes. I don't teach a lot of, um, how do I say this? I, I teach a lot of classes where there's like inherent hands-on brainstorming group work built in. So like yeah. I teach a master's level design class where there might be, you know, 15 minutes of didactic material that we need to deliver, but sure. the most of it is small group work. They're yeah. working on iterating on their design. Like they have to be active, engaged in doing that already. Um, and, uh, and capstone is the same way, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of the learning comes from their actual project work, but, um, for the more traditional, what used to be, well, it's funny you bring this up with the flip classroom because my position at university of Washington used to be called lecture. Right. And so yeah. it's just in that name is, is, kind of the root of this old teaching style, right? Or the totally. traditional teaching yeah. style that we used to have. Yeah. Um, and, and we always would joke like, I'm called a lecturer, but I don't lecture, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that that's been a refreshing change. I think that all the modalities have their place. It just depends. Like yeah. in, in a lab class, I'll have to give a 20 minute lecture so that everyone knows like what they're doing, right? Like an overview. But within that, I'll make them get into groups and explain a concept to each other or things like that. So you yeah. can break it up. You don't have to do it all or nothing kind of thing. And so moving forward, or I guess maybe in, and moving forward and taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture of curriculum and academia as mm -hmm. a whole, um, what are some challenges that you've experienced first fold and second fold? What are some existing challenges that have been discussed? I can share that I remember uh, during senior projects several years ago, we had a lecture of, uh, was four faculty members uh, with senior project and each one shared kind of the hardest parts of their job mm. and I think one universal answer was it wasn't grading but it was assigning grades mm -hmm. oh uh, yes I agree with that that's I, so difficult yes and mm -hmm. I think it was because they don't uh, yeah they don't like to see students fail yeah. Um, but sometimes it's just a byproduct of the statistical power and, and, and it's the numbers game, right? So so let's talk about this sort of, um, like the challenges yeah, that that's, you faced or that you can yeah. you know about. I think, that, I think that's a huge challenge for me is I, I really struggle with <laughs> the grading part. I want everyone to get A's. Of course. <laughs> um, and yeah, and uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard to evaluate, especially now I think um, we're dealing with, after the pandemic, where we've had to really adjust um, expectations, I think. Um, we had to be really you know, flexible. One thing was in the pandemic, due dates became pretty non-existent, to be honest. Like you'd <laughs> have to just, you couldn't really have a hard due date for a lot of assignments because people were struggling, people were sick. And we got into an approach where everything was just kind of movable for due dates. And so I think one of the challenges has been how do you balance flexibility as an instructor and like accommodating student needs with also preparing them for the real world in terms of where mm. you will have deadlines yeah. and you will have really um, difficult expectations that you need to meet. Right. So that's an, a constant tension I have because I also want to be really understanding for the students. So that's that's one of the things I'm always 
dealing with. The other thing is in engineering, our curriculum is very um, uh, rigorous and it's also very, very uh, busy basically. So I struggle with how do we support the students and, you know, making sure they don't get burned out. What can I do to help like make sure they're successful in their classes? Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's difficult. I, I try and make sure the students are on track, you know, way before the end of the quarter so I can help along the way if there's something that's going on. But, you know, this is like, you, you don't go to school in a vacuum. There's always right. like all these extra pressures and things going on. And so, and I think in engineering, we know that there's a stress culture, right? The literature tells us there's a stress culture and students are stressed. Mm -hmm. um, and so in particular compared to other majors. And so I think that's one of the things we have to really think about is yeah. how do we support our students? And uh, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing challenge. Uh, stress culture. Mm -hmm. I, I've never heard sort of those, mm -hmm. that, that before. What, and then I, I obviously can infer what that means, but uh, uh, what does it mean to you, I guess? Just, from... just that um, in, in a lot of the engineering classes, the students are perceiving, you know, and extreme levels of stress and, and and questioning their belonging in engineering right yeah. this is a very like a, a big issue across um different different groups and um also just that we know there's a lot just for the nature of the curriculum being so packed and like so so many requirements the students are often struggling to juggle any extracurricular demands with their course load and I think that's exacerbated engineering. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Kelly Cross, if you're interested, does a lot of great publications on stress, stress culture and engineering, mm -hmm. if you want to read about her work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I just try, I try and get away from that. But basically like trying to tell the students that it's not a good thing that they stayed up all night. Like don't, don't wear that as like a badge of courage. Sure. That like, you know, this is not something we should be condoning and um, we should help them try and figure out how to manage their time. Yeah. and their obligations. Um, a big thing I, I struggle with personally is just how do I support my students that have to work at the same time, uh, right? Like, a, so equity in, in my yes. classes is something I always think about. I don't want to design my classes so that, you know, I, I try to design a, a reasonable workload for my classes, yeah. basically. That's something you need to think about, <laughs> yeah. right? Is, um, uh, obviously, students have lives outside yeah. of the classroom, and then they come in all different, you know, uh, shapes and yeah. sizes. So to really just create the perfect puzzle piece for, to drop, you know, to kind of plug and play a structure of a course, it seems to be um, very tough. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the right word, but maybe a challenge. But also, if it seems like. Uh, there's a lot of people who are putting time and energy to figure out the perfect sort of strategy. Um, well, yeah. Speaking of that, I'm really excited to engage with UCSD. Their the teaching and learning comments here seems great. So I'm I I was I really love and value the teaching resources on campus. At, like at UW, I was really strategic partners with a lot of those 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 people that actually spend their you know careers immersing themselves in the literature. What's the up and coming thing? What's where are the discussions? I learned a lot from. Um, so yeah, I think that's a lesson of just like using the resources and trying to figure out, but um, yeah, best approaches. Yeah, I, I, I also <laughs> remember uh, during my undergraduate years, um, we had several profs um, across the Department of en School of Engineering who did research and education, mm -hmm. and I think once or twice a year, every engineering student would get a, a survey 
um, that was on behalf of these professors conducting sort of some sort of literature research, um, and it was about education, and I always valued those surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, one because they came with a I think ten dollar Amazon gift card. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and to uh, 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 they were uh, it, it was in, I felt like important for a way uh, it was important for a collective group of students mm-hmm. uh, at an engineering school to share uh, a bunch of information to these faculty. Did they ask about your experiences and your perceptions? Is that what the surveys were? I think it or? was experiences, mm-hmm. perceptions. Um, I think there were some specific questions about um, modalities of how courses are taught oh, yeah. at our institution. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was some, I, you know, I was, yeah. I would have loved to see what the sort of, um, end results were for that study. Maybe it's, maybe it's been published by now, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, well, so. it's very aligned, uh, very aligned with my interests. Like, uh, you know, one of my last projects I was wrapping up at UW was one of the survey questions for the students. I would say this continual improvement surveys for the yeah. juniors and the seniors. And one of them as was that like coming out of COVID, we asked them, you know, what instructional like adaptations would you like to see carried forward? You yeah. know, now that we're coming out of the pandemic, but you know, moving back to regular style learning, whatever that is. Yeah. You know, what are your requests? What do you want to see us through? And you know, they were all the majority was you know continue recording your lectures because mm. they like that flexibility, and then also like having a different kind of combination of office hours was a big one, like yeah. virtual and in person. I definitely like the recorded lecture. So it's like these, these, it's good to learn those lessons. And there are some improvements that we can take forward in our teaching right. induced by necessity during pandemic, but overall useful tools. I, um, I, it, my, my mind may be telling me false information here, but I think I recall us getting a survey in our undergrad years uh, regarding um, the courses of statics and dynamics in classical mechanics. So it seems like I remember the survey faintly that there is ongoing research in specific courses across our, you know, maybe across the country, across the world. It's like, how do you teach statics better? How do you teach dynamics better? How do you teach perhaps fluids, thermal better? And I, I, I do recall, I think, getting a survey like that. So it's interesting that not only can you look at this from a macroscopic view, but you can, mm-hmm. you can vary you can you can be very specific on what course you want to try to optimize. Yeah. Right? And every because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, bioengineering, biomedical engineering, whatever it may be, there's going to be a lot of overlap across these across these curriculums, right? Yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah, and you'd be astounded. Like so, one of the big societies I'm involved with is American Society for Engineering Education, mm-hmm. and they have all kinds of subdivisions. They have a huge annual conference, but yeah, you can literally learn anything about any kind of class that you know people have been working on. You know integration of this particular approach or like optimization through this module or anything like that i mean yeah there's such good resources out there kind of what you were talking about it's exactly like that if you have a specific class you want to try and optimize versus yeah and then these like more general sweeping approaches yeah (laughs) that kind of apply to a lot of different modalities but yeah so apart from this great conversation regarding academics um Every guest so far has uh, uh, mentioned some sort of uh, outlets outside of the outside of UCSD, outside of being a teacher or being a PI. And so, what do you uh, like to do and uh, to to get away from from the school life and 
Yeah, there's, well, so I think <laughs> what I like to do now is spend time with my kids. I have two kids. Okay. If you were asking me five years ago, it would have been like, I like to really go on really long walks. So living in Seattle, there were lots of great walks around mm -hmm. to be outside. Just being outside was like the thing yeah. for me, but, um, or like going hiking. Um, and then my other big thing was jewelry making. I like, took a lot of classes, love to make jewelry. Now it's really hard to be very honest. It's hard to find the time for that. So like now my hobbies <laughs> are taking my kids to swim lessons and to uh, t-ball. That's nice. the honest truth right now. But yeah. spending time with family has been great now. So, you know, just being able to hang out. It's been wonderful being in San Diego. It can be outside all the time. So that's been yeah. really refreshing. <laughs> so, so I have lots of interests. It's just I don't yeah. have any time. Like I want to sure. do so many things. I, but be, that's becoming the reality. a parent seems mm -hmm. to that is the um, it's been a huge shift. Yeah, recurring theme. Yeah, most parents. Right? Yeah. Yep. So jewelry making. Yeah, I, I know. A little, I know. I know a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, what kind of jewelry did, did you? Lots make? of beading. Like I loved beading. Okay. Earrings in particular, bracelets. Um, but yeah, a lot of not so much metal work or anything like that. But um. Yeah. Just, just yeah, Bean took a lot of classes. Seattle had a great like bead store, a huge selection. Bead store, yeah, it was like beads and they had classes and Oh I see. And I would do it with my work friends actually. So we oh. would take classes together and then I used to make presents for all my family, like for Christ yeah. <laughs> Christmas and their birthdays and um that a, was really fun. A genuine gift from the heart. That's right. right? Yep. Um, it was fun. It's like an opportunity to be creative too, you know. And you're actually like making something, which is fun. And did you have a Etsy page of any sort? <laughs> no, no, no. You no. never tried to monopolize. No. Or no, just for fun. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> well, that that is a wonderful hobby. I definitely have run into several people over the years who do that as oh, cool. That's why I was, had to yeah, ask you a little bit. Uh, uh, deeper questions regarding that. So, um, thank you for sharing uh, your hobbies. Yeah, and thank, thank you for sharing all, all of these, all all this wonderful information. I hope the audience can enjoy this. I think this is a fresh perspective, a fresh episode in the sense that we haven't had uh, a, a teaching uh, sort of a focused prof on, on, on the podcast. So yeah. thank you again. Yeah, uh, and I will just say that it's becoming more common to have these teaching faculty positions. So if anyone's interested, I'm happy to talk more about like advice to get ready for this career path and things like that because it's been encouraging for me to see like more and more open positions like mine yeah and so if people are interested i'm always happy to chat just want to say that if you had to pinpoint to one sort of goal that you could achieve in this field of developing better research more or not research better mm. curriculum better academics um, throughout your, the rest of your career do you have one in mind or is i think i would be happy if all my students in my classes feel like they had an equal chance to participate i feel equally seen or heard and engaged and feel like they got a quality experience that would be great for my class Great. And yeah, and then the more and the more I can do that to encourage a department wide feel of that, the better. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever I can do to help with that. Would be right. Great. Okay. Well, I think that wraps it up. All right, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Taylor, and and uh, thanks for listening.